it's funny, like as a director, sometimes you stand up there in front of the room and think somebody's going to come up with the answer. And you're like, oh, sh that's me. I'm going to come up with the, I got to come up with the answer. And you realize like, it doesn't matter that you're not an engineer. You have to design a hologram. <laughs> like you have to design a working hologram. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Lisa Joy's new sci-fi mystery, Reminiscence. The film tells the story of Nick, a futuristic private investigator who helps his clients access lost memories. When an alluring new client named May disappears, Nick becomes obsessed with finding her and uncovers a violent conspiracy. Reminiscence is Ms. Joy's feature directorial debut. She has also directed episodes of the television series Westworld. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Joy spoke with fellow director J.J. Abrams about filming Reminiscence. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Um, let's just start with how you even got into making movies, ma making Telling stories. I think film. it's your fault. I don't blame me. Don't please. It's your fault. You, uh, we, we did Westworld together, and then I wanted to direct something then, and then. Well, you were writing before that. Yeah. So why, why don't we talk about how that started? <laughs> oh, yeah. I was, um, I was, I was training to be a lawyer. Uh, no, and then I am a lawyer. Yeah, I went through with that. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Passed the bar, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. 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 The no California small, no bar small is unpleasant. And uh, while I was doing that, I wrote my first uh, spec, and it got me staffed on my one and only interview. I was, I was supposed to be um, interviewing as a writer's assistant or an assistant to the showrunner, and then I, I somehow got the job. It was very surreal. I had to quit my consulting job um, like in the middle of a meeting and fly back to L.A., so it was dramatic. It was so dramatic. Well, but that's great. And then you, and you started to, we did Westworld together, and yeah. uh, obviously with Jonah. And um, I, I'm just curious, like, what your approach is to writing and directing TV versus film. It's a, it's a question I think that people who do both get asked a lot, and I'm just curious what your, your point of view is on that. I mean, this is a good question, and then I want to ask you the question. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell me the right answer. Oh, okay, yeah, you'll, you'll have a better answer. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, I think when I was thinking about reminiscence, I tend to draw and sketch a lot of the scenes and the worlds that I wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to be anamorphic and to have it feel as immersive as possible. You know, on a screen, you're looking at, you know, something that's smaller than you. And so I think it's really great for character work and... You know, we build, we do as much world building now on TV with, with Westworld and a lot of these other shows that you've seen in film. But even, even the dimensions of it, to me, played a part in it. Like, I wanted to give a subtle sense of vertigo for, like, the opening shot and really feeling like you were coasting in there. And, you know, for things like visual effects, you know that everything's going to be blown up so large and any tiny mistake will be seen, you know, like for, for instance, there was one hair on Rebecca's lip as she kissed Hugh in the last shot. And I only saw it on the IMAX screen. I couldn't pick it up on any of the other screens. And then I like, we had to take it out. We had to take it out because it was so distracting to see this, this one hair, but the same with the, the holocaust like that. I wanted to make sure the luminosity, luminosity of it looked the same and somewhat real and warm and not too 
opaque. Um, and it, it really did change. I had to adjust it based on um, looking on a big screen versus editing on my computer, which is why I had to do during COVID. So you were editing during COVID? <laughs> yeah. Um, were you wearing a mask the whole time during editing? Yeah, yeah. Just, just alone in my apartment, just to freak out Mark Yoshikawa. Um, how, just talk about how you went from... So, so the, the takeaway, that I, all I can think about is the hair on Rebecca Ferguson's lip. Like, I know. I feel but there's like got to be huge differences, though. That, like the, the, clearly the work that, that you do on Westworld, it's so enormous and it's so sprawling. And you say, like, so appropriately, the world building is, is, is enormous and, and equal to what is, is done in films. Is there anything in terms of, like, performances or, or, or because there is a beginning, middle, and end to a film, are there, are there approaches that you, you know, an, an approach you take to either writing and or directing um, on, for the big screen that is that feels different to you? Or is it all kind of one process that just happens to be a two hours opposed to a I mean, I think it feels really different, especially it's, it all starts with the writing, right? Where I'm like, okay, well, in TV, you get to spend so much time with these characters, like really growing with them over time and, and doing and really being a part of their, they're, they're in your living room and you're kind of in their living room every week, you know? Um, and there's just such a different tempo to film. And at the same time, I was trying to do a tempo that I haven't seen in a while in film, you know, because I'm so, I, I like right now there's so many amazing blockbusters and they're like, you know, they're just really fast paced throughout and there's action throughout. And of course this was like a smaller sized movie. And, and I kind of, I kind of like sit right between liking Tarkovsky <laughs> a lot <laughs> and like, you know, art house films, but then I really love, you know, the rest of the films, these really commercial films. And so for me, I was wondering about like how to combine those two things in in a film that could service character and this like like themes of like love and a lot of the stuff that I was interested in, like identity and the male gaze, while still having action set pieces, you know. And I didn't have for film, I don't have a lot of money, you know, and, and you can't amortize things like TV. So I had to be really, really careful where I spent money to build to build worlds. And, and I think the cyclicality of the script, it has to tie up by the end, unlike TV, where you can kind of keep going until you figure out where the end is. Mm. I wanted to ask you about um, something about the male gaze, which I'm really interested about from a female writer-director's point of view. But first, um, could you just talk about how Reminiscence went from a concept to a feature? I mean, I, when I first wrote it, um, I... I was pregnant and at home, and I'd been working on a show. Uh, I had to leave because uh, it was a tough um, cultural environment. And, uh, and so for the first time, I was able to write in my own voice. And, and I just, you know, I was, I'm, I'm somewhat always stuck between this total idealism, I think, and also like a world weariness that comes from being a total idealist, you know. So there was um, all the hope that I had for having this baby, and around the same time my grandfather died, and I was thinking about nostalgia, the beautiful moments in our life, and how important they are, and how universal they are, and how we're all kind of softies and moved, like we go about our days, and they're always so busy, <laughs> and there's like very little time for sitting back and reflecting upon those like kind of moments of sublime peace that we have with certain people, you know, and I had time to reflect upon that at that moment, and it was it was important to me um, to try to capture the beauty of that because it's such a universal 
thing, a universal feeling. And at the same time, I'd, I'd left a show because, you know, it was before Me Too, and it was very difficult uh, in a room. I was the only female writer. And I felt like one of the things that, like, was really hurting me at, at that time was the idea of, you know, I kept being told who I was, you know? Like, you can't write action. Girls aren't smart. Girls aren't funny. I know it sounds ridiculous, but if you hear it a lot, it sucks. So I wanted to just take a time to write something totally in my own voice and see and unpack some of those feelings, right? Like, I wanted to look at noir because it's such a male genre, you know? And I think a lot of genres are very male in some ways because all the luminaries in them are male. And, and what is genre but a meme, right? A, a, a trope repeated over and over. It, it develops rules and uh, its own kind of internal logic, right? But that logic wasn't dictated by me. It wasn't created by me or by people like me. And so I tried to look at this very male kind of genre and say, what if I took the essence of that and actually used it to critique, in a way, the very male gaze that it kind of celebrates, you know? Um, and for me, the character of May, so often, you know, everybody knows what a femme fatale is. I say femme fatale, and everybody has an exact image, you know? And that girl's no good, right? And it's a trope that has existed for as long as I can remember, you know, and, and I wanted to unpack the notion of what is a femme fatale. Like, who are we seeing? Because women get villainized all the time, right, and, and trivialized all the time. And, and could I even attack it from the vantage point of, and, and Hugh was my confederate in this. I told him, we're going to sell this movie that seems like it's about you punching people because that's the kind of movie people will make. But it's really an indictment of the male gaze and the kind of blindness that happens when you're so obsessed in some ways with the, your own way of seeing things that you can't see the other person clearly. And it's a crazy thing for a movie star to agree to do, right? Because he, he gets punched a lot. He loses a lot. And he makes a lot of mistakes in it. But, you know, I wanted to show that. I wanted to express the female gaze through the male gaze. <laughs> Indicting the male gaze. Um, and, but also, to, you know, I don't think that he's a villain in it. I, I literally, it's just a conversation about how hard it is to see people sometimes, how hard it is to, to really embrace them. And sometimes familiarity, even with that, you can't see them fully. Like Watts was his companion the whole time. And I don't think he was ever really aware of any feelings she may or may not have had for him. But at the same time, they saw each other so clearly. They were veterans in war and things like that, that I think they also saw that it couldn't be romantic. This was something we talked about a lot as with the actors. Um, and so that's kind of like, honestly, all writing for me, but especially features are just me working out. <laughs> but so, but you, you had this concept, you, you, you wrote the script, and then and did you always know you wanted to direct, to direct this film? Was it always going to be for you to direct? No, I, I didn't. I didn't even know if the film would sell or anything. I just wrote it for myself, and then... Um, I wrote it first and second trimester, and then I started writing Westworld third trimester. And then it had this like huge bidding war, the script, when it came out, which surprised me because um, I'd never really written a feature before. And so that was great. And then um, it went to Legendary at first, but because I had attached myself as a producer, um, they had a lot of like super 
more commercial directors who wanted to do it. And then there were some, and, and that's what Legendary liked more, understandably. And they wanted me to change the ending and make it more very happy, you know. Um, <clears throat> and then there was some, like, direct, like director Park, who <laughs> he really wanted to do it. And I remember having all these me- meetings with him in Korea, and I think he's genius. So I was like him, but then yeah, that scared amazing. Legendary, right? Uh-huh. And so after a while, it just went into turnover. And then later on, um, Mike DeLuke is my producer. He found some other directors who wanted to do it. And in that kind of last moment when I saw it going off with someone, I was like, you know, I think part of the reason why it's been so hard for me to get on board with a lot of the director's, you know, takes on this is because maybe the take that I have is so specific. You know, I see it in my head. And the movie that results is very much what I, what I saw in my head, you know, um, so I don't know. I just kind of, I truly stumbled into it. I had to take it to Berlin and we sold it without anybody attached. Uh, well, Hugh was attached, but we hadn't, we didn't have a studio or anything. We just kind of, it came about in a very indie way, I must say. And in, in terms of realizing it and having it become what you saw in your head, talk about uh, working with your DP, uh, Paul Cameron, and how, what kind of conversations you had about how to bring it to life and what that relationship was like. I mean, I, I love Paul. He's so talented. Um, his gaze with the camera is so poetic and warm. And he's, we have, I like to say we have a kind of, you know, subliminal connection that needs no words. And that's good because he mumbles a lot and I can never understand what he's saying. <laughs> so, but like, we have this way of talking about film where he's, he's technical and he knows all the things that he wants. And I come at it from him. We have so many talks about it where, you know, um, I'll just kind of sketch things out that I like and I'll talk about color palette. Like I told him I didn't want this to have the harsh blues and whites of a lot of sci-fi. I didn't want it to have the cool colors from the from the color wheel. I wanted it to have more of a malic feel, to have more of the warm natural colors because I was trying to take some of the austerity out of sci-fi. You know, like in Westworld, I lean into, in the sci-fi worlds, I lean into those kind of cooler colors in juxtaposition with the West. But in this one, I wanted to bring that warmth to the palette of sci-fi itself so the world could feel more tactile, kind of, you know? And and the same thing with lenses. Like, I mostly come at it from a vantage point of, like, a theoretical approach, right? Where for me, it was like, this progression is about a man trying to see a woman, right? And you know, the thing that I always thought was interesting about like a long lens or a, or, a, or a kind of wider lens, right, is you can get the person's head the same size in any frame, right? It's just a matter of how, how it bends in the lens, right? So if you have a longer lens, you shoot it from further away. Um, and, and the way that it looks to me when you shoot, you know, a, a, a closer shot from long away is it, it looks beautiful in the, in the more perfect way, right? Like a, like a photo shoot, like people's pores look this the right sfumato and and they kind of the um there's no there's no warping of the face right it's all it's all very proportionate but then if you went up close with a wide angle lens you get that it's like a malik feel right the face looks somewhat distorted but very intimate somehow and beautiful in its own right and for paul when i was talking to him i was talking about how in being a thing about seeing someone when our lovers first meet, we should use a lot of long lenses. So it's like desire or an infatuation where you're watching someone from afar and they look so perfect, you know, and you think you know them. And then 
as we come to see the characters, we, we creep into a wider lens closer up and you can see almost the, the ugliness in their faces, the asymmetries and the things that are off about them, including with Hugh, right? When he, when he turns kind of, you know, mad with, mad with desire. And so you're saying like, Hugh Jackman is ugly and asymmetrical. That's, I did tell him in a shot where he was holding the gun on Booth, I said, let's make, make yourself This is where ugly. it happened. This is where Lisa Joyce said, yeah. Hugh Jackman is ugly and asymmetrical. He, he, I asked him to make himself, I was like, you should be ugly in this scene. We sh- you're no longer the hero. Now you're... You're the villain right here, and let yourself be ugly. And we just did this long push on him, and he was, like, shaking, and his face was contorted with rage, and I was, like, perfectly ugly. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you for doing that for me. There are uh, really incredible um, visuals in this movie, and and you mentioned earlier that you did not have the budget one might think you did for the movie. How did you manage? How did you deal with the ambition of this first feature film of yours – with such, you know, a, a, I think a remarkable scope and, and accepting the box you were given in which to make it. I mean, I, I think Westworld helped me a lot, right? Because I knew a little bit where I could put visual... Knowing where visual effects will take you far helps you know where to invest in the practical. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know, like, postage stamping in distant buildings, that's nothing, right? <laughs> but, like... You know, other stuff that, that you don't think is going to be expensive is really, really expensive. So I kind of knew which buckets to lean into and which buckets to stay away from. And so when I was planning The Sunken World, I knew that we'd made huge, huge strides with water in VFX, which water used to be impossible, and now it's not. And so I wanted to capitalize on that. But I also wanted to build some of it practically. That's another thing we do on Westworld all the time is, like, you know, make sure the actors have something to interface with and that the visual effects team has something to build off of. You know, I knew the underwater fight would only look good practically in this world. I remember I was flying coach when I was scouting Miami. I was like, don't put me, save the money for the thing. And I remember we went to this um, theme park in New Orleans where we built Miami and the Coconut Club and everything. And Howard Cummings, my incredible production designer, he said, look, I want to show you the sketches and they're so beautiful and it would look so beautiful. He's like, but we can't afford it. Like, we cannot do this. Um, And I was like, show me the sketches. (laughs) And he showed me the sketches, and I was like, build it. And he was like, how am I going to build it? And I'm like, just build, just don't stop working. Just keep building it. We're going to find the money. And then I waived my producer's fees, and my husband waived his, and, uh, you know, I worked for scale, and we got it done. Um. That's awesome. In terms of the shoot, were there any, because I know it was, you know, when you have a limited schedule, a limited budget, um, it, it is obviously uh, sometimes a gift because weirdly you're forced to reconcile like the vision you have of what you can do it with and, and you realize what's essential. And But I'm just curious, were there any particular pieces of this uh, besides Flying Coach that were particularly difficult? <laughs> um. It's meant to be a joke. Uh, <laughs> the um, the holagos was actually very very difficult. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I mean to get the look of the yeah the look of the machine the in memory. which uh, Hugh and um, Tandaway view memories. That was really hard. That was something that we were doing that was new, and it's funny. Like as a director, it's like 
sometimes you stand up there in front of the room and think somebody's going to come up with the answer. And you're like, oh, shit, that's me. I'm going to come up with the, I got to come up with the answer. And you realize like, it doesn't matter that you're not an engineer. You have to design a hologram. <laughs> like you have to design a working hologram. And like, em like embracing that, like it's like, oh, shit, like I've just got to design something. And, you know, I remember sitting there and being like, I think it should be circular and if we just put, you know, this scrim around the edge, because we were at first going to make it flat, but to me, it wouldn't dimensionalize right. It wouldn't feel like a 360 circulation of, a, of an object if it was um, a square, right? Because then you're just dealing with planar fields. Um, and so, uh, so I worked with my incredible team, uh, and this was a huge effort between Howard, Paul, and uh, Bruce, my um, visual effects um, to come up with this circular machine. We hung it with a luminous but porous material called hologauze, which, you know, I could talk about this for a long time, but trust me, you don't want to hear it. Um, and my goal was to be able to shoot the holograms practically so that when he was on set, he could see exactly what Bannister in the, in the film is seeing, right? Which means that he had to be able to circle in real time a 360-degree um, uh, machine and see an active, ephemeral, moving, full-life scene playing out in front of him in all its dimension. And so, you know, it was a, it was a tall order, but we, we did it. <laughs> and we didn't have, like, you know, repeatable heads. We didn't have any fancy things, so we had to do it by, like, I remember, like, kind of, it was, uh, it was good because a lot of it was to music. So I'd try to walk and hold the lapels of my Steadicam operator and be like, we're swaying to the beat, and this is going to be how Hugh is going to walk around this. And every scene, we would just delineate the circumference of the machine itself so that it wouldn't, you know, flout the laws of physics. Um, and then we would predict the ways in which Bannister would interact with the thing, or Watts, or a third-party perspective. And then we would simply shoot the scene from his eyeline and rotate around it, um, and in addition to traditional coverage. And so if he ducks down, we would duck down with the camera and like look under the table and then sit back up. And then on the day, we circled around Hugh, projecting that around the 360 circle and then also filming what we shot at the, at the same time. And so it was a lot to, um, you know, it was a lot of coordination, but it, it was a very beautiful effect on, on the day. And, and so many of his scenes, I mean, that's where I saved some money, right? I had one standing set that I could put people in, and 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 I knew that the holocaust, you know, I could put scenes within scenes in there, and hopefully broaden the world a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, that's how we did that. Uh, just a couple more questions. There's a um, great scene with uh, Rebecca and Tandaway in the bank, and can you just talk about that a little bit, and like what your what it was to direct that, and what you were kind of hoping it, it to get from it? So cool. I mean, to get those two, like strong, brilliant, beautiful women in a room doing that scene um, together was so fun because in this movie, like, Hugh's character is blind and these two women see each other pretty perfectly, right? They, they can cut through the bullshit. And there's also not the same judgment in a way. Because there are no illusions, there's also not the same amount of um, damnation if those illusions are broken, you know? And... and Rebecca's character references it with Tandaway, you know, talking about how she would judge her but not see her differently, right? 
um, if she knew about Rebecca's past as a drug addict, you know? And for me, that, that means, like, if you can see someone fully, then you can judge them a little bit and be like, what you did was fucked up, right? But if you can't see them fully, if you're seeing an image of them that's idealized, you can't even judge them in those little ways that everybody is subject to being judged because it breaks and crumbles the entire foundation of that gaze, right? And so her concern was Bannister wouldn't judge her if he knew she was an addict. And I think it's true. He would have been like, it's okay, you know? Like, but then he probably wouldn't have seen her the same way again. And, you know, I've seen this with guys all the time who are like, I don't judge my girlfriend for having had more boyfriends than me, you know, in the past, but she's also not the girl I'm going to marry. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's these implicit things that's like, no, 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 I'm like way way more open-minded than that. And then, but you still get stuck in this box, you know? And these two women are acknowledging that those things exist and forming an odd kind of moment of grace between the two of them um, where they, they, they do the honor of at least seeing each other clearly, even if they don't even like each other that much. They respect each other. Uh, so, you know, you, you sunk Miami... Um, what was the, I mean, obviously we're living in a messed up world. <laughs> Says global, the man in a mask. Global warming is, is, uh, is, a, yeah. you know, upon us. Um, I'm just curious what the research you've done, you know, you did for this and, uh, and just in terms of realizing it, what the hardest part of, of that was, you know, of, of bringing that to the screen. You know, originally the script did not have Miami underwater because it was a total indie, right? It was just, um, um, but when it was my turn to direct, I decided to sink Miami in part because I knew I could do it with on, on the budget level. Um, but I also, for me, it was like, how can you do something that's even remotely futuristic and not take into account global warming at this point? Like, it's such a reality, right? It's like It's like doing movies where phones don't exist, you know, unless it's so stylized that you're saying, Phones were never invented. You have to acknowledge cell phones, which is a real bummer if you're doing like mysteries or chases or stuff. When you have a cell phone, everything can be much more easily, you know, lots of, lots of third acts were blown to smithereens by cell phones. Um, but so it just became a thing for me where it's like you have to acknowledge. And I didn't want it to be the primary subject of it, but for the setting and the world, it might have felt, even when I started directing it, you know, um, kind of forward looking. And then when it came, when the film came out, um, you know, the, the, the New York Times had on its front page, Miami's sinking and they're building these barriers to stop the water. And the barriers look exactly like the ones that Howard designed in the film, you know? And it was, it was crazy. I sent it to Howard and I was like, what is, what's happening here? You know? Um, but, but yeah, I think that's the thing. I think all science fiction at this point, if it's concerning futurism and like life on earth has to probably deal a little, deal with some of those realities. Otherwise, it might feel a little bit um, kind of antiquated later, mm-hmm. I guess. Well, I, I have to say, it, like, to have an idea for something, to write it, that alone is somewhat a miraculous thing. And then to have that thing sell and to have that thing get made and then to be the one to direct it and realize it as you saw it um, is just such a huge and awesome accomplishment. And uh, I'm just, I'm so happy for you. And i um, really grateful that uh, you asked me to do this and grateful to you for coming. So yeah, thank you thank so much, you. Lisa. Thank, thank you, you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 